This is Teachers Care Society with Albert Morales. Welcome to Teachers Care Society, the podcast that talks about on use and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I am joined by Dr. Lisa Martin. She's currently the chair of science education department at California State University of Long Beach College of Natural Science and Mathematics. Today we'll be discussing the four models that the state superintendent released, which one fits best for science, and we'll also be talking about media stereotypes about scientists and how it's marring the future generations of scientists. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Our first guest is Dr. Lisa Martin. She's currently the chair of the science education department at California State University of Long Beach in their College of Natural Sciences and Mathematics. She's a former elementary and middle school science teacher with a doctorate in science education from the University of Iowa with an emphasis in curriculum and instruction. So Dr. Lisa Martin, why did you choose to teach science? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me here today, Albert. I appreciate the chance to chat with you. Um, You asked why I was most interested in teaching science. And like anyone who enters any career, everybody has, you know, the story of how you got there. I think uh, with my story, I started off as a small child, young girl, um, really interested in nature and the world around me. But sadly, the longer I was in school, the more that I actually learned not to like science. By the time I graduated from high school, it was really not an interest to me at all. In my life, um, I kind of knew I always wanted to be a teacher, but I really thought I was going to be an art teacher or maybe a music teacher because those were things that I really enjoyed and I excelled in. When I went to school, at University of Northern Iowa, and I was working on observing in an art classroom, I also was required to take a general education course. And I know you've had a bunch of those in your background too. Um, And uh, one of those gen ed courses, of course, is a science course. You have to choose something. And I thought, you know, I've really never had geology before. And it sounded kind of interesting. And I thought, well, why not? We can try that one. So I signed up for geology and started taking the class and it was pretty interesting. And then one day we went on an optional field trip and I still remember this huge aha moment that I had when I was um, exploring, which was actually a big gravel pit and finding fossils all over the place. It was so exciting and um, so hands-on and tangible. I just realized that science didn't have to be just something I read out of a book. It could actually be something that you do and you can go outside and it can be really interesting. So on the spot, I changed my um, intent from becoming an art teacher to becoming a science teacher. And, And that was it. I've never looked back. Growing up, I wanted to be a movie director. I fell in love with cinema from a young age, but I had a field trip in elementary school and that field trip was the California Science Center. And from there, there was this exhibit that I liked. I think it was the Body Works exhibit. 
And wow. that was my big fascination for it. And then middle school came, I fell in love with art. I wanted to be an artist. And then high school came, I fell back in love with science, <laughs> particularly because this one class called environmental science, and it was a brand new class that they had there. And this teacher really pushed us and she really thought outside the box. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when I went to college, I attended a community college for two years. Then I transferred over to California State University of Long Beach, where I pursued a dual credential program in multiple subject and in special education, Matsevere. This also included an autism authorization and an ELL authorization. Now, the big news that happened here in California was State Superintendent Tony Thumburn released four model guidelines for opening up the schools again. Now, with these four model guidelines, it's up to the district to choose which model works best for their district or best for their school. Now, he also came out in an interview talking about the number of students that will be allowed in the classroom. And he predicts a range between 10 to 15 students. And this includes different factors such as the classroom size. Me, I have worked at a charter school that shares a site with a church. So these classrooms were quite small, as you can imagine. Like Sunday school rooms. <laughs> yes, exactly like Sunday school rooms. Now, the reason he's capping it between 10 to 15 is so that we can have six feet apart in the classroom. Now, the six feet apart won't only be restricted to the classroom. It would also be applied to the buses as well. What may seem most alarming is that while the teachers will be required to cover their face with either a mask or a face shield, it will be up to the districts whether or not they want to mandate students wearing masks in the classroom. So just think about that. Teachers will be required to wear some kind of face covering while it's up to the districts whether or not they want to mandate masks for the children. And that will be interesting. Yes. Well, um, when I heard about that, I thought, wow, what a can of worms <laughs> we're opening. Um, just the idea of districts making that choice is um, somewhat problematic because number one, we're not being consistent with what what we think is happening with the health crisis. Um, so it really puts a lot of pressure on districts. Um, I'm going to be curious to see if we'll have different lawsuits taking place, you know, just due to the variability of that. But at the same, in the same vein, you know, um, if people are looking at data and are looking at what's scientifically sound, we know that when everybody is masked, there's a much less of a chance of contagion actually occurring. So hopefully we'll take a look at that um, and see what's going on. I know for uh, my ex-husband and I were both from vulnerable populations. So we are desperately hoping that when our child goes back to school, he won't be picking something up and bringing it home. So there's some real concerns from parents' points of view I know some school districts are worried that um, people like us might be homeschooling our kids 
instead of having them attend school just because of, of health issues. It may really impact um, the number of kids that are going to be at a school. Now, Tony Thurmberg said he took a survey of parents. And in that survey, the parents put that they would still like distance learning to be an option in case none of these four models that he proposed works out for them. Yeah, especially parents with young children. Now, my example, I'm lucky because my kid's going to be a high school senior next year. So he's much more independent than a six-year-old would be. Um, so if I'm, if I'm doing my teachings, cause I'm a university professor and I'm teaching from home, my kid can be learning from home as well. And it's not that big of a deal, but it definitely is a big deal for parents of small children, um, or parents taking care of someone elderly at their, at their home too. Um, just being able to juggle all of those things at the same time uh, has really been overwhelming. I know we're looking at daycares opening up again too, as people are going back to work. And um, it's one of those cases. I think we're now just going to have to prepare for and make plans for what's going to happen when and if we get sick, um, because it is highly contagious. We're, we're all going to end up at some point, most likely getting this. So I guess the question is when, um, and do we have enough uh, supplies and personnel at hospitals to deal with that? Now, do you see a situation in which a parent might not like the model that the district chose for their child? And because of that, whether it's inconvenience or whether it's even health wise, they might request to go to another district, say, if I lived in Anaheim district and I want to go to Garden Grove district because I like the way Garden Grove is approaching this distance learning. What do you do in that case? Yeah. And you know, it might even cause me to think about where is my kid going to school? Is it going to be in a district where everybody is wearing masks or not? Because if I had an option to send my child next door to another district that is wearing masks, I would be more likely to do that um, if there's that option, uh, mainly due to um, our vulnerability. Do you see a situation where parents or families that are vulnerable can state that is a health concern for why they want their child to go to another district? For example, a single parent may have some pre-existing conditions that makes them vulnerable to this virus. And if the parent gets sick, who's going to take care of that child? Or maybe even there's some younger family members in the household, a newborn child, or maybe an older relative. A parent or if the families might think twice about this and they would send in a request stating health concerns for why they want their child to attend another school district. I know you can apply whether or not you can get in is a whole nother um, case. Um, and you can't lie about where you live because you can actually get in big trouble for that. So it is a problem. It's also a problem when you look at who has the privilege to make those choices. I know, um, 
having the type of job that I have and the income that I have and the flexibility, I could make a choice to drive my kid to another district if he was accepted there and if he was admitted. Um, Not everyone has that um, ability to do that. So it's an equity issue as well. Speaking of equity, you bring up a good point. If they do one of those cases where it's first come, first serve. So say there's only 50 seats available to request to be at another district. Not everyone has the resources to be in those first 50 or to be at the top of that list. There's going to be some discrepancy. There's going to be certain privileges to a certain group of people. And if you go the other routes, like some charter schools do, where they do a lottery, there's also fault in that because those who really need to attend another school district because of the health concerns, they might not be able to get their requests in because the lottery is totally random. So for those who really need it, they might not get picked. You know, that's a great question. It's I think we're in a new world now, and I would hope that that would be something that would be considered in an application is someone's need in order to be there. Um, But sadly, often what's considered is, um, you know, just uh, looking at a lot of different characteristics. Sometimes it's just first come, first serve. So even if you're from a vulnerable population, if you didn't get your application in soon enough, you're out of luck. (laughs) So we'll have to see. Now, before we get into these models, just keep in mind and into consideration that this is what is current. This is what is available. This is what is being proposed. As we move further and closer into the new school year in the fall, there might be some new models that might be added. And we might even get into the second wave of this coronavirus. So these are just things to take into consideration as we're moving forward into different phases of opening up the states. Things might change all of a sudden. I would say that there's the possibility that these will change. You know, this is the current idea that um, the superintendent is putting forward for us to think about. But I think there are other models too um, that could be blends of these or maybe something completely different that people haven't really wrapped their heads around yet. So then let's jump right in. And the first model is a two-day rotation blended learning model. In this example, you would have the lower grades attend Monday, Wednesday, and then you have the upper grades attend Tuesday, Thursday. And then all grades would attend distance learning on Friday. The same thing could be said for a high school where you would have freshmen and sophomore. So nine and 10th graders attend Monday, Wednesday. And then you have juniors and seniors attend Tuesday, Thursday. Again, with Friday being distance learning. So there, that's interesting. Um, and I think it makes good use of space at the school. Um, but all of these things are going to really boil down to a few key issues. Number one is how many teachers are you going to need to run that model? 
Um, secondly, not just in addition to how many teachers, but what are the teachers teaching? Like how many different grade levels can they stay just teaching fifth grade? Or with this model, it kind of implies that on day one, I'm teaching, you know, some, some grade K through three, but then I'm, I'm a full-time teacher. I'm also teaching Tuesday, Thursday, which would mean I would have to teach a different grade, something from four to six, if that's how we ran it. They might, they might switch it up and maybe they would say, okay, it's K through six, you know, Monday through Thursday, but just half of them will be there. I actually think that makes more sense because then you could be a fifth grade teacher Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. If we just cut, you know what I'm saying? If we're cutting all of those grades, like into two segments. So I think this model will probably change up a little bit. Um, because it's already a challenge to try to deal with what you're, you're dealing with now, but then to have to teach another grade on top of it, I think would, if I was a teacher, that would send me over the edge. <laughs> like, how are you going to be planning for two different grades? And if you're an elementary teacher, you have like six preps already. So that's 12 preparations in two days um, of different stuff. So that's crazy. Um, I think with this one, you wouldn't have to worry too much about the length of the school year changing, because if you truly are doing home learning on those opposite days, technically you are still in, the kids are still in school. So I think you'd be okay there. Um, the other issue is childcare. You already mentioned that, you know, what are you going to do? when your kids are home half of the time. <laughs> um, that's crazy. So I know a lot of daycares will require that you pay for a whole week, even if your child is only there part-time. That's a, yeah, that's a real monetary issue. And they're going to be pay people who will not be able to afford that. And that's usually... Yeah, that's usually more often the case. Um, so, yeah, childcare. So we'll have to see. I'm not sure if we're talking about how we're um, segmenting the classes of kids. Because if we can only have classes with 10 children in it, and normally you had 30, um, that's a whole different way of... of of thinking about where are you going to be putting all of these small groups of kids? It's really going to be um, a classroom issue. How many additional classrooms are there? Are there flexible spaces that you could use differently? I don't know. So I recently visited a elementary school in Orange County and I talked with a teacher and she told me that the principal intends to turn every room into a classroom. Now, what this would mean is you could have a printer or a copy room turn into a classroom. You could turn a library into a classroom. You could turn the rec room into a classroom, maybe even the cafeteria into a classroom. And the reason behind this is because 
they want to do a two-day rotation blended model. So K through third, in order to have those students be on site and be learning, they can't all fit into a classroom. So think of a classroom of second graders and there are 30 in that classroom. Now, if you want to do social distancing and six feet apart, you're going to take that class of 30 and split it into three smaller classrooms. So a class of 10, another class of 10 and another class of 10. So that's where the extra rooms at the school will come in handy. What normally you would have is these 30 uh, third graders in one classroom. Now I would be sending 10 of those into the copy room, 10 of those into the library, and the remaining 10 would stay in the original classroom. Right. So big issues. So maybe there's a different model that would work better for those schools. Let's go ahead and go with the second model. Now, the second model is an AB blended learning model where half the students across all grades attend Monday through Thursday, one week. And then the following week would be the other half. They would do this again and again and again throughout the whole school year. And just like the previous model, all grades, all students would do distance learning on Friday. Actually, I'm not sure why everyone would do distance learning on Friday. That's kind of interesting. Um, why not just go to school one week and have the other week distance learning? The first thing that comes into my mind about this model is if I see these students Monday through Thursday and the next week I don't see them, what about the retention level of the information that we're teaching them about the content? That is one thing. An even greater thing and something I think is way more important is the social emotional aspect of learning. These students need to be around their peers, around their friends. They need to be around teachers. They need something consistent, especially if you're dealing with the SPED population. Things need to be consistent so that the child can learn best. This is where the previous model comes in handy because you get to see him every week as opposed to see him every other week. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, um, thinking about this model before what you, what one could do. And because I agree, I think the week on week off of in-person learning is not as efficient, mainly because in that other week, if the teacher is teaching kids in real time on site, they are not teaching offline at the same time. You can't do that because you're really busy. So um, I really like the idea also of an um, every other day and maybe Friday could be half days. You know, that way you still see everybody like you're saying so you could do A, B, A, B, A in the morning, B in the afternoon, something like that um, on a Friday. Kids aren't going to lose as much in between meeting in person and those class periods if they're touching base more often. And I, I really am worried that if it's a week on and a week off, um, 
A, they're going to forget stuff. B, we're back to childcare issues. Not, not that the AB doesn't have any, <laughs> but a week on a week off, that's wonky too, right? So I think in all of these cases, we'll have to agree that if kids are not there every day, all day, that there will be childcare issues. There just will be. And that's a problem. Yes, that's where it gets into a bit of murky waters where you're thinking about childcare issues. Um, who's going to be watching your child for one whole week? As a parent or as a guardian, you are going to be working, but then how can you get a whole week off as opposed to every other day? Some parents, they cannot get a whole week off. I know for sure my parents worked full-time jobs and they tried their best so that I was always being watched. That was a privilege of me having two parents. Not everyone has a privilege of having two parents. And this is also how I bring up maybe services like the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA. Those are very vital services in urban areas, particularly because they provided that after school care, even the before school care. And these providers also fed the children. Sometimes it was the dinner that they got fed. There was also homework help that these students needed as well. Let me ask you, if we were to choose this model for the week that the students are doing distance learning, what are they learning during that week? Because the teacher is in the classroom teaching the other half of the students. Does the teacher create double the lesson plans, double the content so that they're preparing and prepping lessons for in-class and lessons for distance learning? This is a big issue to think about. Yeah. And I think curriculum wise, you would have to introduce new content, unfortunately, because otherwise you only have half of a school year that you will be learning um, in your curriculum. So, yeah, definitely an issue. But if you did the AB model, what's nice about um, AB every other day. Um, you wouldn't be doing the same kind of crazy planning that would be required with an AB week design. Because if you do, if you think in your head, okay, I have a group of kids, first day is in class, second day is homework learning. So you do that for A, in class, the next day is home learning, where B's coming in and you're repeating your A's first day assignment. So B gets your in class and then the next day B does the home assignment. So you don't have to come up with double the lessons. Um, so I really like that from a teacher planning point of view, because I tell you, teachers have to have time to really think about what their kids are doing. They have to know what their kids are learning. Because what's the point if, if we don't know whether our kids are getting this stuff and we're just continuing on, um, you could have kids not learning a whole lot 
<laughs> during the year. Teachers need time. Um, so that's a real concern. I know that school districts are already thinking about how they're going to tackle the situation. And one alternative that I heard is maybe having teachers or subs for the online portion of this distance learning. So if I'm the main teacher, I go to school every week. And if you're a student that shows up on the first week, then the second week you do the distance learning, that week that you're doing the distance learning, there would be a sub that will be in charge of that distance learning week. And they would be doing the same thing all school year long. Now, there's another alternative where perhaps there could be a live feed. There could be a camera only focusing on me and what I'm presenting through the projector. And the students would join in on this live session. Again, I'm not sure whether or not the privacy issues would be a concern. What about the responses from the students? You'd be hearing their voice in the live feed. And yes, you can make these feeds private with a password and you can make it encrypted. But what is the best way to approach all of this? Which leads me to my biggest concern for this model. I know that when you're teaching a child, error analysis is a big learning factor. In math, you can do long division or you can be adding and subtracting decimals. Now, with math, there's procedural steps. If I don't know which part of the steps the student is struggling with, I can help them out the best of my ability. With distance learning, I could break down a problem, an example, this whole guided practice into X amount of steps. But a teacher knows that there are even more steps in between all of these steps. So take, for example, converting decimal fractions greater than one to mix numbers. I could break it down to four steps, but in reality, you could have step 1A, step 1B, step 1-3, and then step 2A, step uh, 2B. In the classroom environment, when I have that live interaction with the students, I can see that error analysis. I can see exactly where they need help and I can intervene with that. With distance learning, there's only so much you can do. And yeah, you could do some kind of live interaction through Zoom using the whiteboard there. I use Class Kick. I use Pear Deck. But even with all of this, nothing beats that live interaction, that immediate feedback. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, one of the things I saw this past, um, these past few months is that um, Khan Academy videos can be assigned 
But if a kid isn't understanding it, (laughs) just because you can play it again, doesn't mean that they're going to get it the second time around. Um, Kids really need that guided instruction. They need feedback on, on whether or not what they're, like if you're talking about a math problem, whether or not their uh, logic is making sense, whether or not their strategy for solving a particular problem is the most efficient, or maybe it's um, leading to an answer that's not going to be accurate for whatever reason. If you don't get that feedback before you do your homework, then your homework is completely lost. Because if you don't know what you're doing and you do it all wrong, that's not a good way to practice. (laughs) And so um, that real-time feedback is huge, really huge for kids and development, development. If a parent or family or student chooses a distance learning alternative, if they don't like any of these models, do they get a different curriculum? Yes, they'll be in the same grade with their peers and If they did this model, essentially they would be joining their peers every other week. Or actually, now that I think about it, they would be with their peers every week online. Because you're splitting up the students so that half of them go to school one week and then the other half of them go to school the other week. If I'm that student that chose to do only online distance learning, I would be essentially seeing my peers every week online through whatever it is, Google Meets or Zoom or any other platform that the school decides for their LMS. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, um, the research that was done on teaching and learning in Finland has showed that it's not so much the curriculum was really different compared to the curriculum that anybody else has anywhere in the world. Um, but the reason why their students were excelling so much, um, in addition to their social supports that they have, but it really came down to the teachers knowing their kids and doing error analysis. So if you find out there's a child who's on the wrong track with their thinking, if you can intervene quickly and get them back on that track, we're not going to lose them. They're going to stay with the class. They're going to be continuing to make learning games. So we have to know what's going on in kids' heads. What are they thinking? It's really a priority. And with that being said, let's go on to the third model. The third model is the looping structure with younger students would stay with the same teacher for multiple grades and in a cohort style. Now. Let me give you an example about this. I could be the kindergarten teacher and the first grade teacher. I would have the students for more than one grade. And depending on how we're doing, as far as our progress, flattening the curve entirely, no new cases at all, I could be even the third grade teacher. It all depends on how we're doing and how we're progressing. Loopy structure is kind of cool. Um, I don't know if it really solves the problems though. 
Um, I actually was a looping structure teacher at one time. I taught in a fifth and sixth grade combined classroom where I had half fifth graders, half sixth graders. And we, um, we did a lot of grouping within there. So what was cool about that is you got to know your kids really well because you saw that half of that grade level twice. Um, so that says a lot about knowing your kids, knowing where they are, being able to challenge them. Um, but I think with the looping structure that, um, you're still, we're going to run into the same issues with class size, how many kids are in a room. So if I still had 30 kids, half of them are fifth grade, half of them are sixth grade, I'm still going to have to only be teaching 10 to 15 of them, right? So I don't think it deals with that issue. I like the idea of looping. Very interesting. Um, But it doesn't help with the whole management of the classroom and the number of kids in the classroom. My favorite thing about the looping structure is the bond that the teachers will form with their students. This school year that just ended, students were robbed of that bond, those last two or three months that they didn't have with their teachers. And those are big moments. In high school, you have prom, you have graduation. Elementary school is the beginning of friendships. And those friendships that will last into summer and to future school years. This is all very unfortunate what happened. But if we do this looping structure, we can kind of rekindle those relationships. A teacher will be able to know their student best with their long and short-term goals. If I have my students for more than one year, I know the best way to teach them, or I should know the best way to teach them. I know their learning style. They're used to my teaching style. We know the jokes. We get along well. and. Let's go ahead and go on to the last model. The last model is the early, late staggered schedule. So the grade levels could have staggered start times, an a.m. and a p.m. rotation. For example, I could have K through third be 8 a.m. to noon and then four through six, 1230 to four. The same thing could be done with the middle and high school. The reason for this is so that you don't have huge groups all at the school level all at once. Mm -hmm. So as everything, pros and cons, early, late staggered schedules. The best thing about this is schools are, or I'm sorry, kids are in school every day. So that way you have continuity of a, of a line of learning that's taking place. Um, you can even basically repeat your lesson plan. So if you have half your kids in the morning, the other half in the afternoon, um, you don't have to have double the planning that's taking place. Potential issues though are, So are kids truly going to be there for just half a day and then disinfect and then the other half a day? Or do you end up with longer school schedules such as um, 
schools that try to get two populations of kids through, um, but they don't shorten their school day. It's just like two long days. If you don't have long days, the school year will have to be long unless unless you're doing something else again, like um, mornings at school, afternoon is home. I don't want to say homework because it can't just be homework. It has to be additional home learning that takes place. Um, Childcare issues, of course, (laughs) but maybe fewer because at least if they're doing the same thing every single day, one might be able to make creative um, arrangements with another kid's parents or something. Um, I am worried about the time that a teacher is going to be on duty. Like our, our teachers going to have to have a longer day schedule because if you are and the school year is not shortened, then teachers should be paid for their time. So they would need a pay adjustment. Um, I think those are some of the biggies. Yeah. If we go with this route, what happens is our teachers going to be working extra as well. So if I am an AIM teacher, am I done for the day? I go home. Same thing for the PM teachers. They only show up at their designated time in the PM. I don't know how this is going to work as far as maybe office hours. As an AIM teacher, I'm done with my AIM class. Do I have office hours, maybe whether it's 30 minutes for the students to ask me questions right there on the spot, or that's it, the bell rings, you got to go home, you got to get on the buses that take you home. And same thing with the PM teachers. Do they arrive 30 minutes early, an hour early? How early do they have to be there? And I'm assuming, hopefully things are better by then, but... These staff meetings, are they still going to be online or will they have them, some of them in person? And you can just have these staffing so it's only your grade level. So all fourth graders meet together, all kindergartners meet together. This is just a lot of logistics to think about. I know. And what what I envision will probably happen if it's this um, AM PM rotation is they're probably going to ask the kids to disinfect after themselves. And if that doesn't worry you a little bit, <laughs> that would totally worry me because how thoroughly really will things be disinfected in between? And that's gonna be that's gonna be a concern in any model. Um since it sounds like surfaces can actually hold a live virus for more than one day, uh, disinfection is going to be an issue every day. It's just with an AM PM rotation, you're going to have to worry about it twice a day, if not longer, you know, maybe we're going to be disinfecting every hour. I don't know. The first image that comes into my mind is a NASCAR pit crew coming in and cleaning, disinfecting, all the services. I have also heard that some schools are trying to get rid of their carpet 
and swap it out for wood or vinyl. And I think the reason behind this is that the bacteria, the virus stays on a bit longer on surfaces like carpet. Now that we went over all these models, is there one that you favor more towards science? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I think anything that benefits science the most is also going to benefit math the most or social studies the most or language arts. Um, any model that will allow for um, several touch points during the week where kids are getting that feedback is um, most important as well as interactivity. I know that um, just watching a video is very different than actually doing something hands-on like in the science classroom. Or if you're in math, if you're working with math manipulatives, having something hands-on makes a huge difference. So I lean toward the staggered schedule, the AM PM idea, mainly because if I would get to see my kiddos every day, I would have a better chance to have them experience science as well as look at how they're developing their learning and their understanding about science. If the school district chose the AB week blended model, the way I would plan it out is for the week that I have the students in class, I would do as much hands-on activity as I could. Use of the manipulatives for math, use of models for science, primary resources or primary sources for history. I would do as much hands-on as I activity as I could because in the next week they're online. Now I would do a mixture or actually I would modify the first model, the two day rotation blended with the late staggered schedule. I would put those two together. So if I see grades K through third Monday, Wednesday, and four through six, Tuesday, Thursday. I would also want to see the students on Friday, but as a staggered schedule. So I could have K through third go in the morning from eight to noon and then four through six, 1230 to four. That way I can still see the kids every day. They still go to school right? every day. Yes. Now, the other thing I was thinking of too, is I know a lot of people liked the flipped classroom design, where is if you're doing home learning on one day, it would be more of like the reading, watching videos and so forth. And then coming to school would be the active component. Well, I think it sounds good. Um, I would really be worried about that home learning day because, uh, can you imagine just being at your house and every single class is asking you just to read something or asking you to watch something and that's your whole day in front of a computer? Um, that would be kind of, I don't know, frustrating, um, boring maybe. So 
Um, I think that's something we'll have to be careful about. I love the idea behind flipped classrooms, but I think if everyone did it all at the same time and, you know, it was like one day is active and the next day is not, I don't know. I think I would be worried about whether or not those kids are going to get through what you want them to on those home learning days. I also heard of a situation or solution where teachers that are vulnerable to getting sick, they would be teaching online and that they would have a sub or an aide or paraeducator be in the classroom and be presenting the information from the main teacher. So this way, everyone is working. The teacher who's working from home is still the main teacher, still communicating with the students, still doing the distance learning and being the main person of contact. Well, I don't want to say the stand-in person, but the adult in the classroom would be behavior management, presenting the content that the teacher already created. How do you approach this problem? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, you know, a couple of things popped into my head when you asked that question. One is there might be a case where you would hire a person who would be the one teaching like homeschool science and another person who teaches homeschool social studies or language arts for either the school or maybe a district, you know, for a certain grade level and such, because I do not think it would be appropriate to ask a teacher to plan for two completely different modes of instruction. I mean, oh my goodness. When I, when I think of people um, and what you all were just doing, cause I know you were student teaching recently. Um, what teachers had to do to teach online was huge. It's a huge sink of time to find the resources, to bring them in, to build those classes, um, to even do anything that's really thoughtful takes time. And I don't know how a teacher could physically have the amount of time necessary to teach online and teach in person um, on the same day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we will have to think long and hard about that one because there are some real work issues that are necessary. And I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, Ooh, you know, the teachers unions are going to get upset. So we better make sure that we're, we're helping them out. It's it, the reason why teachers unions would get upset and rightly so is if teachers cannot do a good job teaching kids because they don't have the time and they don't have the resources, then we are hurting the kids in the long run. Yeah, it's killing the teachers. And that then translates into poor instruction. So it would be really a bad decision to, um, to not have some sort of support or compensation in a different way. 
So let's jump into our second topic for today. And our second topic for today comes from a study by the University of South Australia and the Australian Catholic University. And basically what the study was saying that media stereotypes about scientists confound the kids' science ambitions. Basically, students like science. It's a subject that they love in school, but only a few of them are interested in becoming a scientist. And the reason for this is the media portraying any scientist as a mad scientist. I give you some examples right now. In comedy, you have Back to the Future, the doc. He's a crazy guy. You have the nutty professor as well. And you can also have the scientist as a character that's unlikable or a nerd. Maybe the Big Bang Theory. Even in children's cartoons, they are the awkward characters. You have Jimmy Neutron. You have Dexter. In Hollywood, they're the villains. Dr. Jekyll, the Invisible Man, and even in, I think it's Phineas and Ferb, the villain is Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz. In Big Hero 6, the villain is a scientist as well. And the majority of them are, are white male nerds, additionally. Yes. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and they also portray science often as um, a single brilliant person. And they're not working with a, a team of people because this person can figure it out on his own. So that's another part, too, is science is not being portrayed as collaborative. Um, it's being portrayed as white. It's being portrayed as male. So those are all issues when it comes to perceptions of who can do science, if you don't see yourself um, in that field, it would be, you would have a lot more obstacles to face than if you had a chance to actually think of yourself as fitting into that space. I have been told that this has been an ongoing issue for quite a while and it's all about representation. How do we represent scientists in the media and in children's yeah. books and cartoons? Yeah, it is it's something that's been uh, perpetuated over time. Part of it started, you know, ages ago when we first had scientists who were called natural philosophers. And the people who were natural philosophers were gentlemen who didn't have to work because they had inherited wealth. Um, and in the, uh, what we would call Western science venues, um, those were white males who, who wouldn't have to be working in the mines or working as a baker. Um, women sometimes dabbled in science if they're gentlemen husbands or friends allowed them to, um, or sometimes parents, uh, might find a precocious girl, but again, you were, you were someone who was from a very privileged standpoint. Uh, if you go back further, 
there it's not just a white enterprise. I mean, there are phenomenal scientists and mathematicians around the world from contributions from India and Egypt, um, other parts of Africa, Saudi Arabia, other parts of um, the Arab Peninsula. So we don't represent those and we don't represent them well. So that's, those are also issues. So even if people of color or different ethnicities or religion or gender or sexual orientation are represented as scientists in all media forms, I still see that they're a quirky character. And yes, the nice part is, oh, look, here's a scientist of my color. Here's a scientist of my age, of my ethnicity, of my same sexual orientation. This character is still being portrayed as wacky. There is a silver lining, though, and that is in this research, it's stated that these primary grade students do not see a scientist as a job only for a man, that a woman can also be a scientist. So that is definitely positive. There has been some growth, some development, some moving forward in terms of that, that it's not just a man that can be a scientist. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And there's, I read another research study as well. And of course the, the title of it is not popping into my head, but it's very similar that they're finding that there are more women who are represented in these assessments that they're asking kids to do. One of the common assessments is called draw a scientist where kids or adults are asked to take a blank piece of paper and draw your perception of what a scientist is. So it used to be, it was predominantly like an Einstein looking guy, you know, crazy hair, white dude, <laughs> scientist, science coat. And then they usually put beakers in front of him, although he wasn't a beaker type of scientist <laughs> since he was a physicist. Um, but that was usually the typical way. But more recently, we are seeing more women being portrayed as scientists, as well as sometimes kids saying, I am the scientist and they draw themselves, which um, to me is really a good sign if kids can think of themselves as scientists. I really have the teachers to thank for that. I think teachers are trying really hard to bring in other examples um, that are not just um, white men with crazy hair or any man with crazy hair who, who represents a scientist. So in spite of media, in spite of, of the historical pictures, images that we have, that's out there. So kudos to them. There's a bit of social injustice with this topic as well. I think you're going to be talking about who gets the opportunities to pursue education to be a scientist. And that it's not just representation, it's also opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. More representation is important. But that also brings up another issue 
um, which has to do with who gets to be a scientist, um, who is encouraged to be a scientist. So that's, you know, as we're looking at um, specifically Black Lives Matter, there is research that shows that not all kids are encouraged equally um, to pursue STEM careers. Um, That also differs men versus women. Men are often encouraged to go in a particular career um, that might be a STEM career versus women. But um, we are making some inroads with that. I think people are trying, but it's definitely an area that we need to improve in. Um, For me, being someone who's at a university, there is a lot of responsibility for me to ask my future teachers to look carefully at themselves. How are they teaching their children in their classrooms? How are they interpreting their actions, either things they say or things that they do and how kids might perceive those actions? What are our assumptions we have about children? Um, I remember long ago when I was teaching eighth grade science, there was a young woman in my classroom And I remember she was so quiet. She was in class and I could tell she was, you know, working, but she was super, super quiet. And so the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, she must not be understanding the material and she's struggling. And that's why she's not participating in class. Now, this young woman also happened to be um, an African-American girl. um, And It dawned on me after I saw her first test, her first exam that she turned in when she got an A plus on it (laughs) that I had made an erroneous assumption about her. I had looked at her and my first thought was a deficit thought. My thought was she's struggling. That's not, that's why she's not participating where if I hadn't had a stereotype or a prejudice in my head, I might've thought more rightly, oh my goodness, she must be bored. <laughs> she must be this brilliant person who's bored with what I'm doing. I need to change up what I'm doing. So she's engaged in class and she's participating. So while that's a, a horrible thing <laughs> to have to admit, one of the things I'm happy about is I knew enough to take note of that. I knew enough to be ashamed that I had that idea, that, that assumption in my head and that I could work to change it. So I resolved at that moment that every time I saw a young woman or a young man who's um, African-American in my classroom, because that, that my um, population was primarily white and African-American that I was working with, that I would purposefully think to myself, these children are likely gifted, likely gifted. How can I bring that out in them? How can I notice it? How can I pay attention to those things? And it was something that I had to reprogram my brain because over the years of my life, living where I lived, Um, watching what I watched on television, I had certain messages that were placed in my head 
So that's something that we have to do as educators. We have to be aware about ourselves and question everything that we're doing. What are the things that we're thinking? Why are we thinking these things? And how can we reprogram ourselves so that we can be better and be better teachers? When it comes to science in the schools and in the districts, not everyone is going to receive the same science experience. Not every student is going to be able to go on a field trip to the science museum. And there's inequality there as well. Yes. So under-resourced schools is a real issue. Um, And there are so many underlying social issues in all of this. So why are schools under-resourced? Well, our funding largely comes from property taxes. So if your schools are in an area where there's, um, there are more people who are from lower incomes because we're having issues making sure everyone can have access um, and have jobs that pay a living wage, jobs that provide for good housing, a good tax base, um, all of those things are intertwined. So kids coming from under-resourced schools, they're going to be some really brilliant kids there um, who don't have opportunities the same as kids who might be at another school too. So um, looking at how we are providing experiences for kids across the board is going to also be another issue. Um, It's a fact that if you look at schools across the country, under-resourced schools also typically have fewer options for advanced placement courses, AP courses in high school, which again can disenfranchise students as they are thinking about higher education and going into college. Um, They have vastly different experiences. So... Yeah, under under resource schools play a role in the future success of our kids going into other careers. An important thing to think about is that while some schools may be underfunded, teachers can still get creative. Science is all around us. And science can be presented in more than one way. For example, I can think of several ways to show the life cycle. I could show the life cycle of a plant, of a caterpillar. I could bring science right outside the classroom. Shadows, the construction of the building. Why is there asphalt? Why is there maybe wood chips by the playground? Or maybe why is there a little rubber? These are things that a creative teacher could think about. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's great to be creative. And we have a lot of amazing teachers in those spaces who are doing incredible things because of their creativity. So you're right. That's really important. Um I think there's also another underlying issue there too about um, 
about what's being asked of teachers to do and the amount of creativity that it can sometimes take if you don't have funding to fully support your kids. And that is uh, another bit of research is new teachers are often placed in the most under-resourced schools um, to begin with. And that's often the case because the teachers who've been in a district for a while, if they want to change where they're teaching, they get first dibs on transferring to another school. And it's been shown over time that, you know, teachers will often transfer to another school that's better resourced because, hey, wouldn't you like to be in a place where you actually get to be creative in a different way um, and have some resources to work with um, and maybe work in a different student population that seems to be easier for you because um, of a variety of reasons. Maybe it's a cultural match versus to a cultural mismatch. So when we have new teachers who are the ones who are going to the, um, the schools that have fewer resources, that's another recipe for, for there to be more struggle taking place in those spaces too. Um, because if you don't have as much of the experiences, the background as a new teacher, you're inventing everything for the first time. I mean, even if you have a buddy who's giving you lesson plans, you're not teaching right from their lesson plans. You have a lot of invention that you have to do. And, and honestly, a lot of learning that has to take place. A lot of student teachers haven't had a lot of time, unlike you, cause I know you did, <laughs> uh, but haven't had as much time in the classroom to really practice and learn how to teach and understand what it means to connect with different cultures and what it means to um, create those classroom communities. It takes time to learn those things. So that's another issue. Uh, Who and what are the experience levels of the teachers? Who are they um, at the different schools too? I always thought it would be really cool if we could take, you know, these teachers who are getting phenomenal student test scores, blah, 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 and say, guess what? You have the opportunity now to work in a school that's struggling with their student test scores. Come here and work your magic. <laughs> and, and let's see what happens. And I would be really curious to see how um, a different type of scenario might work out where you have teachers of, you know, who've been there for different numbers of years, um, where you have people who have different experiences working with different cultures. Um, it could be really interesting, but right now we're kind of stuck in our current models. And, um, I think we need to push a little bit and we need to think about how are we changing up those models so that our kids really get, um, more, I don't want to say just more of an equal playing field, but yeah, more of an equal playing field to, to resources as well as experienced, um, teachers too. With representation, there's a group that I don't want to be overlooked. And that is those with disabilities, because I have seen many cases where they don't want to 
teach science to students with disabilities. And some of the reasons are quite harsh. And these reasons are, oh, they won't understand it. Oh, it's too complicated. They don't want to go through the trouble. It's too messy. I think if a teacher really puts her mind to it, you can bring science to these students, just like the same way underfunded schools can bring science as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that is an area that um, needs attention. Right now, there are a lot of people who have difficulties connecting with a science field due to different challenges that they may have. And that's often only because we haven't changed enough either at universities or workplaces to allow for, you know, different abled bodies um, and different minded people as well to be able to function in, in a variety of places. So interestingly, I do know there are um, folks who have, who may have um, an area that's a challenge that would surprise people to find out, like if you are someone who's blind, you could still be a research biologist. It depends how you do the research and what you're researching. Um, there's a gentleman, and I know you looked up his name before. <laughs> there's a gentleman who is a researcher and he's blind, but he's one of the world's foremost researchers in seashells. Um, and so disabilities don't need to hold us back. In terms of special education, um, it's interesting to see how sometimes um, kids are mainstreamed into science classes more readily, actually, than other classes, which is great. But oftentimes what I see happening is if kids can't be mainstreamed in because they need um, more uh, an environment where they're getting more assistance, then oftentimes science is not included in some of their instruction. And unfortunately, I think it's an opportunity missed. One of the reasons why I think that is I had the, op I had the chance to learn from a couple of my students at Cal State Long Beach who were special ed teachers who actually got their master's degrees in science ed. And it was really amazing to learn from them and to find out how they were now finding new and different ways to engage their kids. Some of them with really um, not mild and moderate, but um, more severe, that's not the right term, um, types of learning disabilities. Thank you. And... Um, they were finding ways kid, with kids that weren't communicating to find different ways to connect with them with science. And I think the big aha that took place was the cool thing about science is you can touch something. You don't need to use your eyes always. Um, sometimes in science, you can't use your eyes because something's so small or so far away that we have to gather data in a different way. So I think science is actually a really wonderful venue or opportunity to have kids engage with communication in different ways, 
to um, think about math in different ways because you get to experience it. I mean, how many subjects do you actually get to touch or smell or or observe in different ways? It's really an opportunity that we have in front of us. I love the example of having students see the process of a plant growing from the very beginning of planting the seed of the dirt and watering it and having a journal to see the progress. I also love the experiment. I don't want to say experiment, but I also love when they have a caterpillar and then the caterpillar goes into its chrysalis and from its chrysalis and turns into a butterfly. This is extremely fascinating to a child seeing the different stages how it transforms from one thing into another this takes it to another level from seeing in the books yes you're going to put from the books to a model from a model to a video but nothing beats seeing it in real life and this can be easily done in the classroom good point yeah and watching that butterfly come out of its chrysalis. That's super exciting. And to see how different it is, it gives you something to talk about. If you're someone who's working on writing, it gives you something to write about. Um, There are all kinds of things. You can paint a picture of what happened. Many, many different ways that you can engage with that type of phenomenon. And with science field trips, it doesn't have to be a museum. One of the best field trips I've ever went to or I've ever gone was back in high school. It was a brand new course being offered at my school. It's called environmental science. And we went to a water treatment plant. And that was such an awesome experience. It was very stinky, but it was still an awesome experience seeing the whole process, how they filter it out. And they even showed us how they use fish to help filter it out, the water and the toxins and the bacteria. And just seeing how massive and how much effort goes into this, while also keeping in mind that this is local down the street from our high school, is just amazing seeing that connection in the community how it impacts me, how it impacts my peers, my friends, my teachers, the school. Mm -hmm. And I think along the same lines, um, you know, where we think often where science has to take place, it doesn't have to be a lab, you know, or it doesn't even have to be a field trip to a museum. We can go outside and experience science around us in a lot of different ways. We could look at shadows what happens to a shadow over time, over the, the period of a day? We can look at birds. You know, what birds do we see? Why are they here? What are they doing? Um, you know, what do they need to be alive? So there are a lot of different ways we can engage kids with science just all around us. And that's both in terms of, um, you know, special ed kids, but I would say that's for all kids, you know, how do we personally engage with science? Um, even in urban settings, because a lot of people think, Oh, in urban settings, we can't do science. It's concrete or it's, um, you know, we don't have the ability to take our kids on that field trip. Well, let's look around us, around us. Um, you know, the, 
outside as well as even in the classroom. There are a lot of different things we can do. And I think what you said before is really key. What can we use in terms of our creativity to reach kids and to find out what, what they're interested in, what they want to know about? And again, we shouldn't be excluding any types of students. If you think a concept might be too complex for students, you have to learn how to modify. Science can be done anywhere. It doesn't have to be in the classroom. Yes, I know. And strangely, it could even be in a ditch (laughs) next to the school um, looking at what sort of plants grow here versus there. Why? And what are their characteristics? Um, There are a lot of opportunities all over us or all around us. So I think it really is um, up to us to try to decide, you know, what can we do to engage all of our kids in science, Um, not just what we perceive as the best and the brightest, because our perceptions may be wrong. We may not be noticing things that we need to notice. Um, We really need to engage everybody. Um, Another reason for all kids to be interested in science, too, um, they're going to be our future colleagues and citizens who are voting on issues, people who serve um, in juries in different lawsuits. If there's a crime that's been committed, how do you know if that DNA evidence is sufficient? It's science that gives us these tools and the ways that we look at evidence. So, so we need people around us who really have an idea about, about these things. In our current crisis, if you're thinking about viruses, what is a virus? Why can't I take antibiotics and have a virus go away? Um, you know, antibiotics only work on bacteria. So a lot of people don't know that. There are a lot of interesting things that we as a general populace really could have learned differently if we'd learned science differently. And it's always my favorite reaction to see when you tell kids that there's science in the food that they eat. Why is that their favorite chip? Why is that their favorite candy? There's food scientists. There's science in the way we grow our food. There's science in the crops. Why do we have pesticides? It is very fascinating watching them discover like, wait a second, there's science in this, there's science in electronics, there's science in transportation, but science in my food, hmm, I just thought it tasted delicious because that's the way it was made. They don't think about all the additives that are added to give it that flavor. Yeah, that's a good point. And I remember... um learning from a professor who had created a project um, for high school girls and to find other ways to engage kids in science. And some of the girls said that they were interested in becoming a hairdresser, a stylist. And so what he did was he actually found ways to show them the chemistry 
that was involved in cosmetology. Because apparently, and I don't know because I'm not a cosmetologist, but apparently um, there's all kinds of chemistry as you think about hair color, that you have to put acids on parts of your hair, but bases on a different part of your hair, like your roots are different from your ends. Um, Even our hair follicles, like the way the hair grows out of our scalp is determined because of the shape of the tiny hole where your hair is growing out of your scalp and um, the shape of it, whether or not it's um, an oval or round will dictate whether or not you have straight or curly hair and it can even change your, your hair. Um, all of these little tiny holes can change from round to oval in your lifetime. So you could have straight hair like I did when I was a kid. And now my hair is actually curly. So they're finding that with, with chemistry, you could change the shape of those tiny little holes and change whether or not your hair is coming out as straight or, or curly. So that kind of stuff blows me away and it's a different career. It's um, if you want to be a hairstylist, you're going to be taking chemistry. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And if we can find more ways for kids to connect with science in our lives, then we're going to have even a better chance of kids seeing themselves as possibly um, entering those STEM fields. So what is it that teachers have to do in order to change this, to change the perspective, the narrative of students not wanting to be science, about representation, about stereotypes? What is it that teachers have to do to change this? Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that um, we have to now take action. I think we've complained for long enough that we haven't seen the representations, but we really haven't taken action about it. I think of myself as a teacher, when have I last written to anyone who's a movie producer or to anyone who's um, making a commercial about something? And when have I actually asked them to please have some different representation? I know more recently that we're starting to see some of those things. Um, One of my favorite movies that's pretty recent is um, the movie called Hidden Figures, which is about, it really features the African-American women who are working at NASA as computers at that time. And there are so many things that blew me away about that movie. First of all, I had no idea I've never heard stories about a whole cadre of African-American women who are working for NASA. And additionally, I didn't know that they were, they, they were doing the mathematics that was so instrumental in these space flights. It, that's amazing to me. So that story was hidden from us for all of this time, hence hidden figures. Um, but incredible to look at the barriers that the women faced and what they had to do in order to 
do their jobs and to excel. For a woman to become an engineer, she had to actually have a lawsuit that challenged um, their current system where she, as an African-American woman, was not allowed to enroll in certain courses in the night class. So she actually had to fight that and try to get that overturned so she would have a chance to become an engineer. So those things are starting to appear, but there are very few. Um, I'm hoping that if we all speak up and, and start to demand change, start to ask for change, that then we'll have a chance for kids to see themselves in different ways, to see the possibilities, as well as changing the way certain careers um, currently function. Right now, it's a very much a fact in a field such as engineering that there are very few women and there are also very few people of color in that particular industry. Um, I, I would say the exception is Asian Americans. They actually overrepresent their um, number in terms of population compared to U.S. population. But... Other um, races and ethnicities certainly are not well represented in those areas. So we need to make changes across the board. And it takes all of us working together. Uh, it can't just be the teachers. Uh, we also have to look at industry and say, how are we changing the workplace? How are we looking at the way we interact with our colleagues? It's going to take uh, a wide variety of people putting pressure on ourselves and on each other. It's not enough just for me to think in my head, well, what am I thinking? I really need to challenge my colleagues um, as we try to move forward. As we wrap this episode up, is there any advice that you give to new teachers or maybe those who are thinking about teaching, particularly science in today's climate with everything that's going on? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, I would give some advice, but I think I'd also give some encouragement, which is you have a lot of different experiences than um, the current generation of teachers who are out there. And we're really looking forward to your contributions. And I say that because you won't always hear that we're looking forward to your contributions. Sometimes you may face resistance to new ideas or um, even to your creativity. Some people, some of your colleagues may feel intimidated by the things that you're doing or the things that you're trying. I would say hang in there, stay strong because your students desperately need you. We need all of us working together. I see a lot of good changes taking place, but we have so much further to go. So I would say thank you for choosing that profession and joining us in the teaching profession. And I really look forward to learning from you as well. This has been Teachers Care Society. I want to say thank you to my guest today, Dr. Lisa Martin. Thank you. And I want to say thank you to the listeners. I'll see you next time.